Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Grania Nia, and this week, what is Euroscepticism like after Brexit? We saw how torturously slow getting Brexit done has been for the UK. Years of late night debates in the House of Commons, intense talks on trade and legal technicalities, and many 11th hour deals, and Brexit still isn't even fully done yet. On top of all of that, all indications are that the British economy hasn't even benefited from Brexit during the first year that it's been in place. But there are still prominent anti-EU figures across member states. This month, as part of the Good Information Project, we looked at whether anti-EU criticism has been dampened down by all that Brexit drama. Or has Brexit forged a path for extreme Eurosceptics, showing that it can be done, even if it is a bit messy? To explore the issue of Euroscepticism in more detail, I'll be joined by Europe correspondent with Euronews, Shona Murray. But first, project manager of the Good Information Project, Brian Whelan, is here to talk us through its articles on Brexit and what happens next. Brian, tell us a little bit about the latest cycle of the Good Information Project. So the latest uh, cycle of the Good Information Project was looking at Brexit. And obviously, at the very start of the project, we sort of looked at the idea of a shared island and had heavily gone into that. So this time we looked sort of much more closely at trade. And a lot of it was very surprising, I think, for me, in that a lot of the Brexit coverage has been focused quite heavily on Britain's relationship with Europe, Britain's relationship with America or the Far East. And there hasn't been as much of a focus on the effect it's had on trade with Ireland. I think it's fair to say that the British media is very heavily geared towards the Channel rather than towards the Irish Sea. So it's been really great to have some coverage of how trade is doing that doesn't just look at the supermarket shortages or the uh, VAT that people are being made to uh, pay on things imported from the UK. And the basic theme of that post-Brexit trade shift is businesses adapting and getting products in and out of the country in a different way. Yeah, businesses adapting and as well, um, some businesses just giving up. People are having to find new ways to trade and it's resulting in sort of surprising um, forms of new trade routes that I don't think we expected uh, to see when we were sort of predicting Brexit uh, before before it all sort of kicked in. Finally, how can people get in touch and shape the Good Information Project in 2022? To keep up with the Good Information Project, you can always email us directly on goodinformation at thejournal.ie. Uh, you can sign up for the newsletter. Uh, we still have a Facebook group. If you go to the journal's Facebook page, uh, you'll find it right there in the tabs on the left-hand side. There's plenty of ways you can just reach out to any one of the uh, journalists working on the project that month. Um, we welcome any sort of contact, really. Great. Thank you for that, Brian. Shona, before we get stuck into this conversation, let's just lay out the basics. What is Euroscepticism exactly? Well, it, there's a range of Euroscepticism, but essentially it means resistance to further integration of EU member states um, on various policies, like, for example, finance and economics. So we saw, for example, uh, last year, the EU's 750 billion euro recovery fund, which meant, and it was a landmark agreement because it meant that the EU was buying money from the international markets, money markets on the back of all EU member states. And each country got a dividend depending on how bad 
their economies suffered based on COVID. And this was something that had never been done before. And it showed the first time the EU 27 moving towards a closer European Union based on uh, economics and finances. There's other ways that the EU is becoming more integrated when it comes to things like global warming, because obviously there's a recognition that not one country alone can fix global warming. There needs to be much more money going in, going to poorer countries that rely on coal. There needs to be an agreement about uh, lowering uh, CO2 emissions and so on. So Euroscepticism tends to be and um, resisting all this sort of uh, cohesion. And then also, of course, you have other extreme forms of Euroscepticism, which wants the breakup of the European Union altogether or for their member state to at least leave the EU. But mostly they go hand in hand because no country wants to leave the EU and then see the EU prosper without it. They obviously prefer to see the whole thing broken up. And you do hear like a lot of that when it comes to some in the UK a lot more because it was obviously they left and they want to make sure that their, their decision to leave was seen as the right one. Breaking up the EU is one thing, but for people who are listening to this and thinking, well, I'm not gone on this EU policy myself, who exactly is a Eurosceptic? Like, where's the line? Everybody has a problem with some European policy or other. That's totally normal because you're hardly going to be in agreement with everything. Um, some people, let, okay, so for example, if you take that 750 billion euro recovery fund, there were four countries that were against that completely. Uh, the Netherlands, Austria and Finland among them because they're rich countries that put a lot of money into the EU and they probably weren't going to get much out of this fund because they they obviously, their economies are quite stable. The vast bulk of it was going to Italy and Spain who had suffered a lot. But the whole point of the fund was also that the European economy would be lifted and that everybody would then do well in terms of trade and so on. And then you'd see Europe doing much better and holding out stronger globally and also democratically because you'd have fewer people who are concerned about, uh, you know, the governance and so on. So those countries are not Eurosceptic. They were just against this policy. So you like the likes of Mark Rutte, the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, of you know, a very important standing European Union member of the European Union. So just because they were against it didn't mean they were against the EU. They just had concerns. And once the negotiations came through, their concerns were taken on board and they reduced the amount of grants available. So that's how the EU works. It's by consensus. But you have then Marine Le Pen, for example, who is uh, once again running to be the president of France, who initially wanted to uh, a French exit. That was her calling card to leave the European Union. Now she's softened that because Brexit isn't the greatest advertisement for leaving the EU, but she wants to change the EU from within. So essentially having less cohesion, uh, France um, having less involvement in things like the the rescue fund, having France less involvement when it comes to decisions around global warming, but also having the EU having less input when it comes to regulations, labor regulations, or even uh, regulations around human rights and so on. So they want to change the European Union to have a less of a principled um, union and have a, just more of a conglomeration of member states that essentially trade. Of course, a huge element of this conversation is about Brexit. And the UK has always been quite Eurosceptic, even when it was at the heart of the European Union. Do you think the country's fully come to terms with the implications of leaving the union? The jury's obviously still out about the implications of Brexit. But if you look at even trade, October 2021, you saw about, uh, I think it was around... 15% less trade between the EU and the UK and its biggest part and 15.7% and it was that amounts to about 13 billion in October alone. So 
from a trade point of view, it's been very difficult for the UK because the EU is its closest partner. When you look at the future, uh, global warming, obviously it's important to trade closely with your neighbours and you see the UK talking about trading more with Australia, which makes no sense because if they want to export, and remember the fishing industry was supposed to be the biggest industry to get the most out of Brexit, they can't export their mussels and you know fish to Australia, it makes no sense. So they've been prevented because of the fact that the UK is out of the EU's regulatory system. They've had huge problems, huge paperwork trying to get exports across and many businesses have, have fallen apart. And then you have the huge implications for um, people. You know, there are millions of people from Britain who either lived and worked in the EU who now have to go through various documents to try to stay in places like Belgium. I have British colleagues myself. A couple of them managed to get Irish passports. Others didn't. So they're constantly trying, filling out forms to try to stay here in Belgium. And then you have people who had their holiday homes in France and Spain and so on, who are now limited to staying only 180 days in the country. Otherwise, they have to go through a, another registration process. And it and it's still there. And then they lose access to healthcare, EU healthcare. And that is a huge problem, which, you know, the British public was actually lied to. And if you look at the likes of Michael Gove and so on, who were asked these questions on question time, will there be an impact on my life within the continent if I vote for Brexit? And they were told no. So that is really down for the UK to, to have a discussion about. But certainly I covered the Brexit um, referendum in the UK and I was just astonished with the stuff that was coming out that people were saying to me. The reason why they're leaving the EU is because the local council had uh, built a new car park instead of a retail unit. And I was saying, well, you know, this has nothing to do with the EU. But people, I felt, thought that Brussels had a basically ruled the UK with an iron fist and that the UK had no decisions about its laws and its borders. And that, that just simply is not true and wasn't true then and isn't true now. If we turn our attention to... The other side of the debate and the European Parliament. Who are the Eurosceptics in the EU's Parliament and how hardline do their views go? Well, yes, they, I mean, they do range, but you have obviously the ECR group, which is the European Conservative and Reformists. That was the party that David Cameron brought the Tories into in, just before they left in 2014. And that was kind of seen as the worst move he ever made because he used to be in the EPP with Angela Merkel, with Fine Gael, and it used to be the most influential grouping. And if he had stayed there, he might have um, been able to influence maybe the European Union when it came to renegotiating its membership a bit better. It was also him moving away from mainstream European politics. So there's that there's that group. Then there's also far right group with that has, you know, Matteo Salvini, the alternative alternative for Deutschland. Those are the groups that were anti-immigrant that basically vote against anything that's progressive, that votes against anything to do with, um, well, again, global warming, but anything to do with the rule of law, which is a huge problem. We have obviously big issues in Hungary and Poland around those countries. Taking and getting and receiving billions of European taxpayers' money every year and cohesion funding and various different funding, but saying that they don't have to abide by the rule of law in various areas, such as human rights and so on. So the European Parliament in many countries and many groupings have been steadfast in resisting this and calling on the Commission to act, whereas these groups would vote against them. There's also been votes about you know, protecting refugees, the European various European funds, regulating big tech, 
relationships with Russia, because we know that Russia is obviously a an aggressive state, a, a something a, a country that wants or seeks often to harm the European Union. These groups would often vote in favor of Russia and vote against, let's say, sanctions against Russia, against Belarus and so on. So that's the type of, I suppose, a role that they have in the parliament, but they don't, they are a minority. The groups you've mentioned there, just how disruptive can they be? In a way, yeah, they vote against anything that's progressive. They're disruptive in that regard, but they don't have the numbers to be as disruptive as they like. Now, having said that, they are trying, they have tried to come together to create a supergroup. They they even just a couple of weeks ago, they tried to do that, but they failed because they, you know, they don't actually have the same views when it comes to big issues like Russia, the Law and Justice Party, which is in power in Poland. They are obviously historically and understandably very fearful of the role of Russia, whereas some of these groups, um, even Marine Le Pen and so on, they have a much more open minded view of Russia. For softer Eurosceptics who might be critical of some of the ways the EU operates, but who ultimately do believe in the European project, do they have some ideas or aims about how things should be done differently? Well, I think that those people aren't really Eurosceptics because everybody's entitled to say that the European Union should do things differently. And I think they exist still in the mainstream. You know, like uh, the EPP would be the grouping that Fine Gael is in. And you have, let's say, the Austrians People's Party in there. You know, those, those sort of parties... They would vote against them. I mean, there was a very controversial vote a couple of years ago in the European Parliament where the EPP voted with the far right against a resolution which would allow or ensure that EU Frontex and other services would collect people in the Mediterranean and save them. The vote uh, fell. I mean, most people would say it is an obligation. Actually, it is an obligation to international humanitarian law to save people. Uh, especially refugees and people claiming asylum, but the EPB voted with the far right on this regard. So these are, again, very pro-European Union, uh, the Christian Democrats. I mean, they're they're absolutely supportive of the EU and EU integration and all the rest of it, but voted against uh, re- this resolution. So you do, the you know, I wouldn't call those people Eurosceptics. They maybe just uh, have a different vision. You'd see that on the left as well. There, are, I mean, the Euroscepticism isn't just... Um, the right, you see the likes of Claire Daly and Mick Wallace consistently voting um, against European Union foreign policy because they see it as sort of anti-Russian and anti-democratic and so on. They're far left uh, parties as well. So, yeah, so, I, but again, I mean, I, although I don't know about Claire Daly and Mick Wallace's position as to whether they want to get rid of the European Union, they're just extremely Eurosceptic or increasingly Eurosceptic anyway. The EU said after Brexit that it would look to change certain things about even how it communicates to EU citizens about what it does for them. How receptive has it been to that change or other types like less integration, rolling back on existing structures or even that idea of it being more an economic union than a political one? Well, I think the see, the problem is with the economic and political union, they both have to go hand in hand. Like that's the that was one of the reasons why the we had the eurozone debt crisis and the banking crisis. There wasn't enough uh, legislation uh, to stop governments acting in a profligate way that would endanger the euro. And so you can't just have an economic union without having political buy-in and without having legislation to oversee that. It just doesn't work. And we saw that to the detriment. I think in terms of the EU reacting to the Brexit debate, I think they have failed pretty much in communicating this because I, f- I find that some of the some of them may have just put it down to typical old British Euroscepticism. 
you know, um, and just saying this is a British thing rather than actually it being an EU thing. And because we have seen the rise of Euroscepticism in, you know, Italy and so on with the with Salvini's party, the League and, and others, and obviously the growth of Marine Le Pen. Um, but at the same time, that has settled somewhat because the British experience with Brexit has not been a shining example of what of the good and, and you know, the advantageous or auspicious uh, future that you have if you leave the European Union. So they've decided to change it from within. I think that the EU would like to obviously communicate better what it does, but it's, it has been fighting a lot of crises. Like the, the impact of Brexit has been that it has dominated in a very confrontational and difficult way over the past five years. Constant fights with the EU and the, between the EU and the UK over citizens' rights and over, over the Northern Ireland Protocol. In actual fact, you know, the Brexit debate has strengthened the unity within the European Union because all of them agreed, everybody agreed, even the Eurosceptic parties like in Hungary and so on, that the, the Good Friday Agreement should protect, be protected and that Ireland as a country should have solidarity and support ahead and above the UK, which is a, part, which is a country that has left the European Union. And that was interesting. But from a communicating to people point of view, I think it's been difficult. However, what I would say is in the past year, we saw the EU having this unprecedented um, authority to, to buy uh, vaccines for all 27 member states. Now, the EU doesn't have any competency in the area of health. It doesn't, health is definitely a national competence, but each member state said, look, this makes sense. The EU buys the vaccines on behalf of all 27. It means we have strong negotiating heft because it's a, the wild, wild west trying to get vaccines. And if we don't do it as a group of 27, you'll have Germany and France getting loads of vaccines and small countries like Ireland and Malta getting none because that's the way it works when it comes to you know international trade. And at the start, it was shaky because we saw the UK getting more vaccines because of AstraZeneca and the, UK and the EU getting fewer. And now it's seen as a, a real success. So I think when people see basically in front of them what the EU can do for them, that's the best form of, I suppose, people buying into the European Union. I mean, Ireland wouldn't have the vaccines it does have now if it wasn't for the EU. You mentioned the countries that have the most prominent Eurosceptic politicians. What about the most pro-EU countries? Well, Ireland would be, well, I think that most countries that are, well, obviously the founding countries would be pro-EU. I mean, you look at Germany and France, they're the kind of motor of the European Union. They're the biggest, well, Germany in particular is the biggest economies. They're the countries that put most in to the EU. I mean, look at, that's why there was a problem around Germany being worried about the EU borrowing on behalf of each member state, because certain countries don't have the ability, may not have the ability to, you know, pay money back and so on. Most members states are pretty much pro-EU. There are just ones that are anti-EU. I think they're the ones, that's how you'd measure it. Like even in countries like Spain, where they have a left-wing government or right-wing government, they're all buying into the EU. The Netherlands, like I mentioned earlier, they have a, they had a problem with the recovery fund. The negotiations take place and the Netherlands uh, comes back satisfied and so does the European Union. So it's more just about consensus building. Everybody agrees, and especially small countries like Ireland, Malta, Lithuania, Latvia, and so on, that there's no there's no real argument as to whether their countries have been improved by EU membership. It's just it's pretty it's pretty much black and white. I mean, can you imagine if Ireland wasn't in the EU and you had this block that it wasn't involved in and you had no access to the single market and us Irish people couldn't work, particularly a country like Ireland that has such a, a long um, history of emigration, you know, so 
it's it's obvious that the EU is a good thing. Obviously, there are many things that need to change around it. But I think every country and every government has its own concerns around certain policy, like CAP, or there are countries, um, particularly Poland, but also Ireland, are worried about the implications of the Fit for 55 package or the Paris Climate Accord or how the EU is moving when it comes to climate change, whether that's going to impact on the Ireland's agricultural industry. Ireland has a concern there because it has huge agricultural industry. So there's push and pull throughout, depending on the policy. I mean, for example, even the COVID cert, France was against maybe the COVID cert at the start because it, there was so many uh, vaccine hesitant people in France, the government would come under pressure for having this COVID cert that demanded people got vaccinated. So it got inserted that you didn't need to be vaccinated. You could have a negative PCR test to travel. So there's policies that emerge that the commission put on the table and the member states and the government say, well, that won't work for me, but this might. And it's and that's how it works. And that's why it's wrong when, when a, a prime minister like David Cameron, which he used to do regularly, goes back to Westminster and say, you know, Brussels told me to do it because nothing happens in Brussels without the agreement of of the, the individual government of each country. Poland and Hungary are both countries we've mentioned here as having a particularly difficult relationship with the EU. But if we focus on Poland as one interesting example, what's the dynamic like there between the Polish government and the EU? Well, the, this Polish government has learned from obviously the likes of Viktor Orban in Hungary, who has been engaging in sort of illiberal policies for the past 10 or 12 years. And the EU, the member states, uh, the commission have done nothing about it, even though they were called upon to do so. Hungary is now regarded as not even a democracy anymore because of the likes. And a lot of it is to do with EU funding, where the government has given lots of money to buy, to build roads and so on. And we don't know exactly where the money ends up. So uh, he's also engaged in policies which are really uh, destructive towards minorities. He's used xenophobic language around uh, refugees, calling them Muslim invaders. I mean, this is the type of thing you heard in Germany in the 30s, you know, and he's never been reprimanded. And so what has happened is you see this contagion effect where other countries with illiberal demands uh, say, well, we can learn from that. And that's what's kind of happened in Poland. You have this far right party, the Law and Justice Party in government, led by uh, Jaroslaw Kaczynski, who's the president. And what they've been, what have they've done is completely changed the judicial system in Poland, which isn't in line with the European Court of Justice. They've created a thing called this Constitutional Tribunal, which is a makey-uppy tribunal of judges that were politically appointed, that were politically, uh, uh, you know, of this particular sway who, when they give them a, a case to adjudicate on, they know what the result is going to be, which is what we saw recently in a case which said that European Union law is inferior to Polish law. Now, that's news to everybody else, because when you join the European Union, you know, you take on board that EU law is superior because that's how international law works. And it's not in every area. But anyway, so this was obviously a huge issue, a huge issue but the Constitutional Tribunal itself is deemed an illegitimate tribunal. Uh, so the whole system is basically very, very difficult. There's a huge confrontation with the European Court of Justice and the European Union. We don't know exactly what's going to happen next, but we have seen things like the Polish government or this Polish party having things like anti-LGBT or LGBT free zones in various parts of Poland and engage in a way that is um, against Article 2 of the treaties, which says that each 
citizen of the European Union is entitled to dignity, is entitled to human rights and basic rights. So there's a huge confrontation going on there. We've also seen the way they treat migrants at their border. Now, this is another problem with uh, Belarus using migrants and so on is in a hybrid warfare attack. So when we're talking about the potential countries that might leave the European Union, Poland might be one good example. But we've seen recent polling suggesting that there's really high support for the EU. Is that right? Very high levels of support for membership of the European Union, right? similar to Ireland, sort of 70, 80%. So what would happen is if the Polish government did try to do this, you would have them maybe turfed out of office rather than Poland leaving the EU. It would make no sense for these countries. I mean, even with the UK as you know, as destructive it appears Brexit is, that's a country that has a very strong economy and is really influential globally, permanent member of the Security Council and so on, and is a a wealthy country. Poland has its economy doing really well because of its access and uh, to the single market. So it wouldn't make any sense for these countries to leave. And if you were to talk to certain people in Brussels now, they'd say, well, look at, let them leave because they're actually causing a lot more pain because they're being obstructive, they're voting, they're threatening to vote against everything, including issues around global warming, where we'd like to move on with things. The problem with Poland is it's actually also very, it's a large country and, you know, people would want to protect it from Russia as well, because we've seen so much more Russian aggression over the past few years. So, but I don't think we'll see Poland leaving at all, never mind anytime soon. We can't go through an episode without looking at Ireland obviously. And when we look at the kind of the views about Ireland's membership of the EU, how do people feel now about uh, being part of the EU and the limited impact Eurosceptics or Eurosceptic parties uh, who want Brexit are having? Well, I th- Ireland's relationship with the EU is still very strong. Um, the European movement had a poll there a few months ago, which said support was, you know, around 70 odd percent, 80 percent. And I think Ireland, people in Ireland recognise the transformation of the Irish economy and also um, opportunities for Irish people because of the European Union, freedom of movement being one, but also citizens' rights. Um, And as the aforementioned things like just even environment protection, roaming, but mainly the economy, the Irish economy has transformed completely into this, probably one of the most open economies in the world. And it's not just, and the EU, having access to the EU single market opens the Irish economy up to US trade and global trade elsewhere. So it's 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 a sort of no-brainer in relation to membership. But of course you see um, that support wane when it comes to the fact that Ireland is now net contributor to the European budget. But that doesn't mean it doesn't get a huge amount out of it as well. For example, Ireland is getting the lion's share with the 5 billion euro Brexit fund for countries badly affected by Brexit and obviously gets money out of its recovery fund and so on. So, but that doesn't mean that though, I mean, we haven't, remember the Lisbon Treaty, people voted against the Lisbon Treaty because they thought there was going to be conscription into an European army or that there was going to be abortion. The Lisbon Treaty didn't speak of those things and it doesn't impact constitutionality of Ireland's neutrality at all. No membership does that. And of course, um, doesn't mean there wasn't pressure in Ireland in relation to corporate tax, for example, coming from the Commission, but Ireland was still able to veto that if it wanted to. But I think there's a consensus globally, really, that it is high time for multinationals to pay more than what they were paying in tax and moving it to 15% once that that was a rate that was 
in you know that would stay and they were Ireland wouldn't be put under pressure to move it even further that Ireland was willing to agree to that but it was within its right to veto at the same time so I think um you know from an Irish point of view it still gets a huge amount out of the EU and it is one of the most influential small countries in the world and in Europe as you can see the solidarity given to Ireland over Brexit was uh, unprecedented as well. After hearing all of that, it doesn't sound like Brexit is going to be the beginning of the end of the EU, as Nigel Farage had predicted it would in 2019. At this point, it doesn't, because where where would we get our vaccines from? I mean, where would you, uh, you know, when you're having a discussion about global affairs, sanctions against Russia, sanctions against Belarus, if we were all individual countries, we would have basically no fight against these these countries. It's a much bigger issue than just even, you know, Ireland and budget. It's about how we're going to manage sort of the global fragility that we have at the moment. And it's only working together with the support of countries that we can do that, particularly when it comes to our economies, the recovery fund. I mean, there's so many areas there you'd say that it's a definitely good thing that we all have this ability to work together. And, you know, all of the rule of law issues, I mean, around uh, rights and so on, they have to be defended. And again, Ireland wouldn't be able to defend any of those things if it, if it didn't have the support of the Commission and wasn't able to club together with like-minded uh, democracies like Germany, like France and so on. None of this is perfect because you're trying to orchestrate 27 member states with different views, different positions in moments in time, like you could have one government who wants to vote against something because domestically it's in the middle of an election and so on. So everything is push and pull and it is complicated. And I think that's the other reason why communicating it can be very difficult. And also that's why it's so easy to lie about it because so many different things going on at the same time, so many different policies. But I don't think that uh, Brexit it was the harbinger of the breakup of the European Union. Listen, thanks so much for that, Shona. You've really broken down a lot for us there. And uh, thank you to Brian earlier for all that good info. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and thank you to Shona and Brian for speaking to us this week. This episode was brought to you by producers Nikki Ryan and Aoife Barry. The Good Information Project is co-funded by Journal Media and a grant programme from the European Parliament. The European Parliament has no involvement in or responsibility for the editorial content published by the project. Thanks, Slán Thamel. <laughs>